Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, get ready all you Congress kooks, because it's SST 180, Universal Congress of Prosperous and Qualified. It's their second release that we've had on the show, and we love Universal Congress of. It's I think it's been since episode 109, where we had Jason Kahn on as a guest. That was very cool, but this episode, we've got another special guest, Brent. Yeah, we've got Ralph Gorodetsky on the show. Oh, it's so cool to have Ralph on. So the, the second half of the rhythm section, kind of, now, Yeah, which is, which is cool. I always you know, obviously really enjoy when we've got the bass players on myself. Uh, and this is our last episode too. We're going to take a break for a while, right? So we better make it a gooder. Yeah, we better. Yeah. So bring your A-game brand, okay? It's oh, <laughs> a lot of pressure, man. <laughs> okay, well, keeping the pressure on you, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay, and that's A-game spelled E-H, right? A what? The A-game. A-game? Yeah, E-H. Oh, like... Eh? Yeah. Game? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Canadian A game. Nice. All right. Good one. Okay, just a quick spiel, Ryan, dipping our toe into the comp zone. Uh, live at the Knitting Factory, Volume 5 ah. from 1991. This is the last one of these. So so uh, we've got Roy Nathanson and Anthony Coleman doing a track called Reflections, which is a Thelonious Monk tune. Roy is a sax player, primarily with the Jazz Passengers, and Anthony is a pianist. It's trad jazz. They have albums together on Knitting Factory Works. Uh, then we've got Oren Blodo. Oren's a guitarist um, with albums under his own name. Uh, primarily his band is Elysian Fields. Uh, he was in Chunk, a cool band I mentioned, I think, from Volume 2. This is a great jazz, blues, soul rocker. Great vocals from Oren, killer guitar playing. Uh, then we've got a band called String Faced. Burn Nix is the guitarist. He seems like he was kind of the driving force of String Faced. He played in Ornette Coleman's Primetime band. Uh, also played with James Chance and the Contortions. And this track almost has a bit of a no-wave feel to it. Ah, cool. Then Pear Ubu is on here, but it's really just the duo of Jim Jones on acoustic guitar and David Thomas on vocals doing their song Heaven. It's a cool version. It almost sounds like Rokey Erickson or something like that a little bit to me. Oh, no way. Then we've got the wonderfully named 101 Crustaceans. <laughs> That is good. Yeah, uh, Oren Blodo again, this time on bass. Ed Pastorini is the main guy, singer-guitarist. He played in Elysian Fields with Oren. Kind of herky-jerky art rock. It's cool. They have a couple of records out that I'd like to hear as well. Two tracks by Sam Bennett, again, from Semantics. Uh, I think he's probably been on almost every volume. Uh, this time it's Sam and Kazutaki Uemzu, a Japanese reads improviser two tracks definitely improvised uh then we've got a band called expatriate fantasy seems like a one-off with you know a whole bunch of new york jazz scene folks it's got a real world music thing happening it's cool joe morris's sweatshop joe's a jazz guitarist this track sounds improvised to me uh and then electric outhouse it's a david linton project we've seen him on other volumes He's on the tree. We'll be seeing him later this year with Elliot Sharp and Carbon. Kind of a heavy electronics thing. It's cool. 
Did we mention in a previous Knitting Factory session that Ralph, like our guest on the show, he's on one of them too, right? He yep. plays on one of the tracks. I can't remember if it's him or if it's a it's a different lineup because he once they moved over to Enemy Records, I'm not sure if Ralph was in Universal Congress of anymore. Oh, okay. I thought Ralph was maybe maybe in a different combo that was on one of these comps too. There's a lot to keep in track. Yeah. So I, I might be I might be mixing that up. Yeah. Well, as we'll hear in the interview, he plays with lots of different people, so there's a there's a chance, but I'm I'm not sure if if he was on a Knitting Factory release at all, it was that Universal Congress of track freight okay. train. But I, I can't remember if he was the bass player on that one or not. I'd have to go back and check. Okay. But yeah, that's the Knitting Factory. Uh, I, there's a bunch of stuff on their label, Knitting Factory Works. Some of it's worth checking out. All five of these comps are, are really good, though. Yeah, where did you pick them up over uh, the years? Yeah, like, just, you don't see them. Yeah, I've just found them over the years. I don't know. So you can get them cheap enough, or at least you could when I was looking for them on Discogs and stuff. Oh, I see. Amazon, places like that. Nice work. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> that's it what do you have oh that's it well we're gonna talk about a little bit about something together i think oh okay so hey hang on a second i'm pretty sure we were talking about live at the knitting factory volume four and the song is freight train and i think ralph is on that one yeah okay cool yeah just checking that real quick here all right so my spiel is another edition of the mojack mailbag brand yes so we get mail yeah we do people send us records this is ridiculous but totally welcome yeah. uh this is though a total life society edition and total life society is a label that we've mentioned in passing i would say a few times during the show but we we received a package from the main dude matthew waskovich which is huge. I mean, I, I got to learn about some new tunes, which I'm going to talk about here that uh, I'm really digging, but uh, we very much appreciate this. We had mentioned Total Life Society, I think, and possibly even Matthew, when talking about the cool Hidden Rifles record across the neighborhoods that Mike Watt is on. And then also those two Vicious Fence singles that came out in 2019. That Vicious Fence uh, band is the combo. Matthew, Matthew's in both, right? But uh, Matthew in Vicious Fence, he's also joined by Tom Watson, John Talley-Jones, Mark Arm, and then Jerry and Pete from Mike Watt and the Second Men. Now, this Total Life Society label, though, it appears to me when I when I'm looking into it here was really oh, and I should mention it's a label from Cleveland, Ohio, started in 2008, and I I think it's really initially a vehicle for Matthew's main band, Scarcity of Tanks. That band was news to me in getting this package, and uh, it's all over the SS tree. They've got ten records out. Matthew sent us three to check out. So now I've got seven more to get, mm -hmm. but I'll just run down those three because they're really cool. Uh, the first one I'll mention is 2017's Garford Mute CD. And he also sent a copy in a sweet gatefold double LP. And it's one of those, I don't know what it is. Is it tip on or tip off? 
though, you know, when they've got like, you know, they put the, they stick the paper to the jacket. I think it's tip off. Maybe it's tip on, but uh, it's a really like high quality, sweet double LP scarcity of tanks in the press kit. They're <laughs> uh, described, or maybe it's discogs as like psychedelic rock, but it's for me, it's like noisy kind of random indie post-punk art punk post rock it's just kind of all over the place and it's i think due largely to the rotating lineup of musicians that join matthew on these releases at their best for me on this garford mute record is when they sound kind of sonic youthy on tracks like embrace or activate where the guy uh, rich raponi's bass gives off some cool lou barlow vibes for me i love those tracks steve mckay from the stooges is on this record with some killer sax on the track us pushy and it also features you were mentioning per- perubu a moment ago tom herman and scott kraus from perubu are on this version of scarcity of tanks 2017's garford mute that's a cool one mm-hmm. even even better for me was uh 2018's hinge cd that matthew also sent a bit more cohesive and less diverse than garford mute that's not a a slight or a negative to Garford Mute. It's just, you know, it's got less people on this record, I think. Um, it has Doug Gillard from Guided by Voices, but the highlight for me on this one are the guys, uh, Nate Shebley on drums, Nate Shebel, and then Dan Godwin on bass. Killer rhythm section on this record, Hinge. Really like that. The third, though, and my favorite by far, is 2019's dissing the reduction this has nels klein on it john talley jones on it but the thing that really you know had this record sink its hooks into me is it's got raul morales tom watson and who's on base watts on base watts on base so you've essentially got mike watt and the missing men backing up matthew for much of this record and it sounds missing men-esque this record Uh, but the rest of the players who are not members of the missing men of course fit right in like nels klein and john telly jones and others it's a really solid record now quick trivia though for you completely unrelated to total life society but it was brought to my mind what other missing men record is there where mike watt is not the front man quiz time i don't know man i have no idea the bobbly man or something like that no, dude, there is a Lou Barlow and the Missing Man record called Centrado 3 from 2010. That's another good record. Check that one out. Okay. Continuing on the Total Life Society tip here. Uh, those three records are cool. Like I say, I got to check out the other seven now. Total Life Society is not all scarcity of tanks. As mentioned, there's also that Hidden Rifles record called Across the Neighborhoods. That's cool, quirky, noisy indie post-punk drums by jim sykes from the invisible things are a highlight for me on that one mike watt on bass mark shippy from us maple uh norm westberg from swans and then of course matthew on there it's a really cool record i i do like this one i especially like there's this one track subway on there where the guitar it flicks on the vibrato like part of the way through which is just awesome. It, it just like it comes on at a really cool point in the song. And then 
acoustic guitarist also adds on this layer of echo and it's just killer it's it's one of those things where you can tell it's intentional that the the guitarist is layering on these tracks like he's not trying to hide it and it's really really effective i love it yeah you you and i have both talked about that record before i think you brought it to my attention maybe but it was a recommend yeah yeah definitely influenced by that cleveland cleveland punk lineage you know oh yeah like the weirdo cleveland punk like electric eels or whatever mirrors those kinds of bands yeah it's a it's a cool record it's one of those ones too where you got to listen to start to finish as is all of matthew's records that I've, i've been listening to now it's like you know there is a whole there's like an individual scene for each of these scarcity of tanks or hidden rifles records that you got to really immerse yourself in one release at a time. Um, and then of course, vicious fence, we've mentioned these singles before, I think, and now here, here's a revelation for me. I, I did not know this until I listened to the scarcity of tanks, Garford mute record. I think the band vicious fence takes its name from a lyric from the song she stopped over on that scarcity of tanks record be interested to hear if matthew could confirm that for us two seven inches there both cool both from 2019 uh cool indie garagey tracks so we totally really appreciate getting this stuff in the mail um i am totally digging this stuff uh, i did a total deep dive this week um, and you know me, I'm a physical release guy, so I totally re- appreciate that. Now I just need to track down those other seven Scarcity of Tanks records, as I said. Now, another thing, too, to mention about Matt. Matt is an artist. He also has an art book of drawings called Watching You that you can order from Textile Records in Paris. This looks like a little kind of art zine, though. 50 copies made, 24 pages, little fanzine. Um, and apparently, Matthew's also either a poet or had kind of a poet imprint called slow toe s-l-o-w-t-o-e i couldn't find out much about that it seems to be maybe it's defunct but i'm going to keep my eye out for that too because uh, matthew definitely has some sst ties and some great art so totally appreciate it yeah i mean for me like i've wanted to hear the vicious fence stuff ever since you mentioned it way way back i seem to recall you mentioned it as a sub pop singles club release or something though do they have a they have a release on sub pop no it's it's it wasn't a sub pop singles club but i think due to the mark arm connection it was also distributed by sub pop mm. i th- i think that's okay. probably but i mentioned it in 2019 right when it came out i believe yeah yeah i've wanted to hear it ever since so i was super happy to get those and Hidden Rifles is awesome. Scarcity of Tanks. Anybody who's a fan of some of the, you know, artier stuff on SST would love these bands. And if you if you read up on Scarcity of Tanks, they get compared to SST bands all the time. Like oh, Sa- yeah. Saccharin Trust, I saw come up several times as a, yeah. as a comparison. That dissing the reduction record is totally solid. Yeah, I, I need to keep listening. I liked Hinge was the one that grabbed me, but they were they're all good and you know, kind of the kind of records that you can really listen to a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's new stuff every time. Yeah. So that's it. The Mojack Mailbag. And that's it for Spiels until our, our next one at some point later in the year. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew, for sending us all that stuff. 
Totally. We don't do it for the records, but it's a, it's a huge surprise and much appreciated. I hope that doing the show repays the favor to some degree. Yeah, for sure. So should we take care of our parking tickets at the DMV, Brant? Yeah. <laughs> History lesson, part one. Did you like that one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So Universal Congress of totally digging this record this week like oh, yeah. wow like wow yeah. um I, I i kind of forgot how much i dig these guys um i was also really really digging the way this record sounds like vetus did a hell of a job on it it's got yeah. like an amazing live feel to it just love it yeah yeah the drums sound great they sound super live it sounds like a band playing together in the studio which yeah yeah i, I didn't really ask him this in the interview but it was recorded fast so and, you know, all super good musicians so and improvisers. So I can almost guarantee you this was mostly recorded live in the studio. Sure sounds like it. It's a killer record, man. Like, I was just grooving so hard to it this week. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Grooving is, is the main word. And just like every track has got a new groove. I can't wait to talk about those. Why don't you remind people about Universal Congress of? Okay, yeah. As you mentioned, we've seen them, well... They were on uh, the No Age comp, but the last full episode we had with them was episode 109, Joe Biza and the Universal Congress of, where we had Jason Kahn as a guest. Jason took us through the formation of the band. I want to say like it was less of a deliberate or conscious decision to begin with, to form a band. It just kind of happened. It just kind of happened. And as you'll hear in our interview, there was a big group of musicians that were all jamming together. That first record happened really fast it was recorded in may of 86 yeah like, it's got a different vibe than this one too yeah i'd have to go through the timeline but i think maybe saccharine trust was even still together when that first uco was recorded hmm. they self-released it on cassette under the name latino baby jesus in 86 and then sst released it in 87 the lineup at that time was joe buys on guitar and jason Kahn on drums who kind of formed the band together joined by Mike Demers on bass and Paul Urias on second guitar. This Prosperous and Qualified is definitely a more fully formed UCO. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the first record is basically a 35-minute jam. Uh, Joe and Jason are back, of course, on this one, uh, but we've got Ralph Gorodetsky on bass and Steve Moss on sax as kind of the core members of the band. We've seen... Steve previously as a member of Saccharin Trust, dating back to the We Became Snakes era. Also playing on this record is Jacob Cohn on alto sax. Jacob also played in Cruel Frederick. And we've also got Lynn Johnston on tenor and baritone sax, and also bass clarinet. We've seen Lynn also as a member of Cruel Frederick, Slovenly, and probably a few other places here and there as well. The berry sax on this record is just a stone-cold groove. Yeah, yeah, Lynn really got around. This album was recorded in November of 87 at Lyceum Sound Recorders, which was owned by Vitas Matare. We'll be seeing it a lot more as we move along through the catalog. Vitas engineered the album and co-produced it with the band. Maybe let's throw it over to Ralph. Let's do it. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Ralph Gorodetsky. Ralph, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Ralph, take me back. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in L.A.? Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, but I basically grew up in Los Angeles. When did you start playing bass? Was that your first instrument? 
basically I was at this like correctional school, which was like one notch away from like juvenile hall, you know, Mm. it was like an alternative correctional school and they're having a graduation. And I was the first one from like junior high who was in there. It was all like high school students, but they had a band and they were playing jumping Jack flash and they needed somebody to play bass. So somebody handed me a bass and showed me how to play it. I went, fuck it. I'm in, you know, (laughs) There you go, my inauspicious debut. Yeah. So where did you go from there? Did you start taking lessons, or were you just all self-taught? A little bit of I mean, me personally, I was, like, really interested in, like, um, classical music before I was really interested in, like, rock, you know? It was, uh, like, my best friend at the time, his neighbor, it was funny, he was, like, a Chicano, this was, like, maybe... The early 70s, ever. he was this uh, Chicano dude. He looked like Carlos Santana back at that time, you know, long hair, beard, everything. And you would think this guy would be like a metalhead or whatever, but he was like a jazz, like a jazz and a classical music snob. Mm-hmm. So we would just basically like smoke pot. And he had room. I, a little habit I got from him, he had milk cartons that he would fill up with records. So his whole room is basically just a couch and just wall to wall records. Mm. So, and I would sit and listen to music. So, I, I mean, I liked studying, like, theory and stuff, and I took a few, like, lessons, but, you know what I mean, never really, like, it was kind of the Jack London School of Musical Education, if you get your mind yeah. <laughs> All right, so when did you, what was your first band? Was it, were the Penguins your first band? Oh, yeah, geez, you're going, you got to do some research there. Yeah, well, I was in all kinds of different bands, you know what I mean? Yeah, that was, that was just people I knew from high school playing with all kinds of different bands after that yeah what kind of band was the penguins i was weird it was that same thing it was like i always had a little bit of it was kind of a strange mixture of like people that listen to classical music or prog rock or whatever mm-hmm. mixed in with punk through the whole punk thing when i met joe because a lot of us i i always liked like weird like igor's blues referencing you were talking about prosperous and qualified is like my take on like if Stravinsky was playing in a blues band (laughs) you know so those bands always had a bit of you know what I mean like none of the bands me personally that I was ever in ever quite fit into any genre neatly when I met Joe you know and they're playing the saccharine trust and like sometimes like the hardcore punks didn't really like them you've heard saccharine trust because they're not really like hardcore Right. In, in the in, in in the formalistic sense of you know what I mean like they're, they're too weird mm-hmm. which is why which is why we like get along musically right like what other bands were you into in the mid 80s like were you were you going to see punk shows yeah sure I mean we're all going to see punk in fact I mean like with Universal Congress of basically we were all everybody in the bands knew, either had played with each other in other bands or knew each other from other bands it was all pretty much around that like kind of not specifically but kind of like the al's bar anti-club kind of scene mm-hmm. or elsa new real like these little clubs at that point in time in la there's a lot of little place people just find a place and start booking shows there so there's all these little I mean, even less mainstream. The whiskey, you had to be like X or something. You know what I mean? You had to be somebody. Right. To play, even if it was the counterculture somebody. But other places, 
you know, you could just be anybody <laughs> or nobody or something a little more off the wall. So how did you start playing with Universal Congress of? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I knew we all knew each other. Like uh, Steve Moss played in one of the other bands I was in. Mm-hmm. Steve Moss, the saxophone player. Right. And then he was also playing after that band. He was playing at the very tail end of Saccharine Trust. He was playing saxophone with Saccharine Trust. And then Jason was playing in like, it was either in, in Downey Mildew or the Leaving Trains at that point in time. So we all played either with each other on in another band or on a bill with the other band and knew each other. And then I had heard Joe play and I immediately understood like, he, him to me, he sounded like, it was like Eric Dolphy on the guitar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I understood that right away from listening to like avant-garde classical music. It wasn't, does that make some kind of sense? Like the thing that punks didn't, it was outside of the immediate punk language of straight distorted bar chords. It was like dissonance and disjunct. You know what I mean? If, but if you listen to weird pointillistic classical music, Eric Dolphy or Stockhausen or whatever, you would understand, oh, hey, Greg, this guy's just in to make a noise. <laughs> and then we were just playing somewhere, and he goes, hey, you want to come jam with You want to come play with us? Man, we've got this thing going. Like, I'm, I'm quit doing saccharin. And he goes, we got a gig up in San Francisco in a couple of weeks, and we we're supposed to record. So he was already playing with, like, Steve Moss and Jason. Right. I went and played with him, went great. You know, what are we doing? Okay. Then I got a couple ideas and we just, you know what I mean? Like the first, we just played and we knew, we felt it right away. Like, this is cool. Okay. I had a couple little ideas and then we just went from there. Do you remember recording the album at Lyceum Sound? Yeah. yeah. What do you remember about it? It was in November of 87. Do you have any recollection about how long the session would have been? Not really that long. I mean, we did that in like a day or so. But oh, wow. recorded a day and then mixed it because we had, I mean, basically, we've been playing those songs a bit. Like like I said, I mean, I started playing with those guys, and then Joe said it was like in two weeks, a couple of really not that much time, there's one of those like SST fests up in San Francisco. It wasn't at the On Broadway. It was right across the street from it, which is, I think that's like a penthouse strip club now, but there was a big club there, not Mabuhay Gardens either. I don't. So you know what I mean? It's like I started playing with them. They go, hey, we got a gig in a couple of weeks. So then we just started knocking around ideas for songs and we were playing a lot before we got to record the album. So we pretty much knew those two, you know what I mean? Like, so you were pretty new to the band when this album was recorded. The band was new. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't really like, I think Joe just started that thing. And then when, when he actually got like the band, I just came in and then we just started playing. I don't think, we might have done a gig before that where it was just like him and the drummer and just improvise, you know what I mean? Like without the, without Steve. I think the first art incarnation of the band was actually called Latino Baby Jesus, if I'm not mistaken. No, that came later on. Oh, that was after. Yeah. Or he would do that. He would do that on and off. You know what I mean? There was other kind of stuff we would do. The, the Joe Biza Liberation Orchestra. I mean, was, Joe was playing with those ideas all the time, you know? Yeah. Going through the tracks, Dancing on Plato's Tomb, it's credited to you and Joe. How would that have been written? Is that something, like, would you and Joe, you and Joe have gotten together and written that song, or? 
yeah, I mean, like to me, like I, I'm basically consider myself more of a writer than a, a real like hardcore like chops kind of guy. Like, you know, like if I'm playing with people, I kind of get the idea for like a structure of a song and then bring it in. And then you go, hey, I got this, I got that. You don't want to just monopolize the whole thing because it's kind of a collaboration. Right. In this song, Dancing on Plato's Tomb, when all the instruments kind of lock into that groove, is that an example of harmelodics? Uh, you know, okay, to me, okay, if you, like on that same album, there's Step Back, right? That was my, I was kind of like, we would all listen to Ornette Coleman and we weren't doing the exact same thing, but we're kind of taking our version of it and doing it punk. Like, you know, the head, right? The beginning yeah. of the, the whole, the interlude. That was kind of, I had the idea of like, let's have, instead of the drums, people are used to having drums playing a backbeat, right? Mm -hmm. or had the idea of everybody playing the melody. Do you know what I mean? So that was kind of taken from sort of Ornette's idea of, we, you know what I mean? We were never specifically like a harmonic punk band. We just took those ideas and like threw them around the living room, if you want to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's like an influence of that. It's like dudes that grew up in the 70s and listening to like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Captain Beyond and then went through the punk thing, but then started listening to like jazz and then mixed that all up. If that make, does that make any kind of sense? Yep, for sure. If I listen to the record, that's kind of what it sounds like. <laughs> okay, the sax break in this song, I think it must be Lynn Johnston, the kind of yeah. the kind of lead sax break. Were you hanging out at Lynn's house? I seem to recall we had jason Kahn on and i seem to recall him telling us about jam sessions that lynn would host yeah i mean we we're all playing so we're all playing together and then jason was playing with him in a uh, cruel frederick okay this place where we used to rehearse that which you might have heard of because a lot of other bands rehearsed there it was the hully gully studios i don't mm. know if you ever heard of it robin jameson we're, yeah right yeah. okay i mean he was running basically because i did uh construction with the guy that run the place and a uh, Dave Torger who was in another band like and a really well-known artist but so we were rehearsing there and there used to be these like basically we just have like improvisation whoever was there like whoever was there and not afraid of interested in improvising music we would just improvise so all those different cats would come in and sit and play with each other and you know people that Joe still play with now, Larry Cop Carl, who Joe plays with. So does that make any, I mean, all those people kind of floating around. And then Lynn was probably doing like Cruel Frederick with Jason and Jacob Cohen, another friend of ours who was playing. So it all kind of overlapped. Right, for sure. Yeah, Lynn's playing that on, on Dance with Plato's Tomb. Lynn's playing like that. It gives it that. We were trying to go like, let's get for a big band sound. So he had him come in and, um, he was playing the baritone sax on that one. You know, I mean, we can hear it on the riff. Okay. Right. It gives yep. it that yep. real fat, low end sound. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the second track, "Spread in the Malice." 
right what's who's at the beginning of that song going boodle up boodle up is that jason counting it in kind of yeah yeah that's the in kind of that's the in kind of joke where we he's he's kind of singing that's how we would always count that song off right he's kind of <laughs> singing the lick that he plays uh, that's what i thought yeah well, yeah. it's pretty funny. I mean, <laughs> it's like <laughs> he suddenly started doing that. And even even to this day, I mean, I still play with Joe. We're doing another thing called the Mechalodiacs where right, right, yep. we still we play that song. They're still Wayne, the drummer, still count. That's the way that song is counted. Off. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like playing with Jason? Oh, it's great. He's a great drummer. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He is really good. I mean, and that song is kind of interesting, like, because Joe just had the chord, you know what I mean? He had the chord, there's like, there's no actual real melody over the chords, do you know what I mean? It's just that chord. Right, yeah. And I had the idea of like, look, let me try this walking, this like moving bass line against it, and have Jason play this really like, it's like methamphetamine kind of ride cymbal, you know, really like hyper kind of bebop. For sure. You know? Yep. So that was kind of that. That's our version of like punk jazz. <laughs> I, mean, that, that, I don't know what else we'd call that song. It's very much punk jazz. For sure. <laughs> okay, the third track is High Time, James Blood Almer. Tell me about his influence on the band. Yeah, I mean, because again, look, that's still come on out of that whole thing of like Ornette and Jamal Adin Takuma and that kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like, we were listening to a lot of that stuff of like um, late 60s jazz and kind of trying to mix that like groove with free, freer improvisation. Because like, okay, that song, for instance, right? There's really no chord changes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like a droney drone. And it just goes on. So there's a lot of room. And it's just an open-ended groove like that same thing that it starts with it just goes to me i mean i kind of hear that sort of almost african-y kind of influencing like that music you know you guys jammed a lot live i'm assuming like improvised uh within the context of like we were never like a free improvisational band mm -hmm. you know what i mean we would always stretch like we would always like nobody knows when that song is going to end right like, here's the section in the song where Joe improvises, for example. Right. Did Jacob and Lynn ever play live with you guys? Oh, yeah. The next song, Stovetop, that's credited to the whole band, so I assume that was, like, written in as a group at practice yeah. or something? Yeah, that's very interesting because I was, I was playing around with that little, to me, like, the bass line I'm playing has a little bit of a reggae-ish kind of groove, right? Mm. But Jason started playing. I think Steve Moss kind of came up with the head, and then Joe added part of it. But it's great in the in the in the middle. And I don't remember how he did. It's like Jason at one point dropped a beat, you know, and during the solos, and we go, "Hey, look!" I forget who came up with the side did, but it was really kind of cool. We're like playing three four against us, playing a four four, and if you keep doing that, it's going to come back around to the downbeat at a certain point. <laughs> do you know what I mean like if you listen to the solos yeah. if you go and listen to that there's one point where the drums are out of sync with the band we're playing in four and he's playing in three 
But every four measures, it comes back into sync with it. So don't ask me how that came. I mean, that was that was just basically that whole thing came up out of a group improvisation, really. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, the next track kind of shifts gears. You were talking about the blues earlier. We've got a pretty straightforward blues song, Willie Dixon, Mellow Down Easy. Yeah. And Steve on vocals. Is that Steve also at the start talking about the unpaid parking tickets, etc.? Yeah. He could really play that harp. Oh, yeah. And to me, it was also like, you know, like, how can I say this? Like, okay. Just for me particularly, like, some people that play jazz are a little too much jazz snobs. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, and it, this is very true. People got very into when we played at some jazz fest, and people got indignant. Somebody got upset that we played that, or that we did Louis Louis. We used to play Louis Louis sometimes, too. And they were very, you cannot do this. We just did. I don't understand what you're talking about. And, and then I was trying to explain to this guy, like, if you don't understand the root of those two musics is the same. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. I think it was kind of cool that we were trying... I know, at least from my end, was trying to not be too much of any one thing, but incorporate a number of different things. And I know Joe liked that, too. Do you know what I mean? Of having that a sort of unpredictable musical palette where you can't get pigeonholed. If you have someone in your band that can play harmonica like Steve can on this song, I mean, you're pretty much obligated. Right, <laughs> right. yeah, and why not? And there's also, man, I mean, look at that, that we like blues do you know what i mean like blues music went the same way reggae did where it became this co-opted kind of like a hacky sack beach cleaned up version i don't know i mean not to not to not to look down at anybody but you know what i mean you want to keep the vibe in the music kind of like yeah. does that make some kind of sense yeah, i mean we, it, just, it, we just like that song and we like playing the blues <laughs> it doesn't sound out of place at all on the record it, it fits perfectly yeah, but look, that's what that that to me is trying to make a point of like that that spreading the malice. Well, spreading the malice has blues changes in it, really. Yeah, funny you say that this one turned off the jazz crowd. When I heard "Mellow Down Easy," I my first thought was, "Wow, this must have gone down really well live." Some it did, yeah, but you know what I mean. Like that, there's how can I say this? Okay. I think this is a very sad thing, and I, I've run into it in every realm that, like, every realm of music has its snobs, which are all, also very kind of dogmatic. And that, that, like, for the same reason that hardcore punks didn't like the Minutemen, which seems incomprehensible to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's a fucking great, that's a great band. But because they weren't, because they played Steely Dan or a Van Halen cover song, or everything wasn't, you know what I mean, that they would play History Lesson, which is kind of softer and a little more poetic. Does, you know what I mean? Like, people are not going to make room. I thought punk was supposed to be about rebellion. Yeah. Musical. So, you know, I agree with you, but some of the people in the audience are not that open-minded. Did you, did you tour this record? Yeah. So what kind of bands would, would you have been playing with? Was it primarily you know punk shows or were you getting yeah, booked I mean, into jazz clubs no it was in between i mean 
it was funny because we were on SST, so you get booked into the SST places where, I mean, I remember this, like playing some SST thing with this hardcore punks in there, and then they kind of like got like it, like we're playing it because we play with a certain kind of edge and fast, you know what I mean? Like spreading the malice or whatever. It's like it was, it, it's still sonically like a can opener, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, Okay, let's just play everything loud and fast, and maybe we won't do mellow down easy. We'll just stick with that, that the more aggro stuff. But because at that point you're just on tour, we're playing any damn place we can, really. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you remember any of the bands you would have played with? Like, I'm sure you played oh, with sure. Firehose a ton. Yeah, sure. I mean, we played with all those. You know what I mean? It was like all those different bands i mean we played this one out it was like an all-ages show with like fugazi in chicago <laughs> we played like after them or whatever it was amazing it was just with everybody anybody hmm. uh flipping the record over igor's blues this one's written yeah. this one's credited to you i think of that we're trying to i was trying to get okay that was my thing of trying to get polyphonic and polyrhythmic over blues changes like what when i like because we were listening to that kind of stuff like when i hear eric dolphy er, eric dolphy to me is like 12 tone blues beep boop bap boop bap boop you know that kind of stuff yeah so that was my take on that like if igor stravinsky was in a blues band what would he write <laughs> <laughs> and that's how that that's so people don't know i mean that's who igor was that was kind of what that sort of abstract vibe that we're shooting for on that one. <laughs> right. Okay, the next song, Love Camp, Bob Fitzer ends up with a writing credit. How did Bob, yeah. how did that happen? Just from jamming? No, because that was an old thing that those guys were starting to do. Like, he, that was his, like his bass, the bass line, which is kind of a really, it's a really cool bass line. And this sort of asymmetrical kind of not quite in four four, right? Right. So that's kind of that. And then Love Camp was just basically it was the I was living Joe Bizer was living in the in the like um American Hotel and I was living in this loft about two blocks away from that. And Love Camp was this this is the homeless thing in LA's been bad for a really long time. That was the name of this place under like, it was like the 4th Street Bridge. It was basically like a city. And they called it Love Camp. <laughs> That's a song about, you go over the lyrics. That's a song about us wanting you know, Ah, okay. It's a song about <laughs> going down to Love Camp, you know. So that was a little poem that Joe wrote about that. Mm, basically a tent city. Yeah. Uh, Step Back, that one's credited to you. Quite a complex yeah. pattern on that song like how are you right like are you writing the horn parts in your head are you humming them to the band are you notating them no we were just humming like to me i was just playing it on the bass like it's just because look that one's all unison basically rhythmically yeah so that is my weird attempt at, and, and the drums are playing right but i just did the riff and then we'll take it through again that goes through some changes that are to me my writing a bit and i know joe does this too is like take a little bit of a blues change and you don't necessarily have to stick to that one four five but it's kind of in there do you know what i mean like 
if you hear the beginning of that song, the head goes through a little bit of the blues changes, and then it just goes into a, and I also happen to like funk. So then I would just went to that driving funk kind of thing with those guys would just solo over. Right. You talk about the instruments kind of lining up. I really noticed on this song how much Joe's tone just matches so perfectly with Steve's sax. Yeah, great. Yeah. The next track, L.L. Kook, credited to Joe. Another one was Steve Jacob and Lynn. Did you, do you remember, did you ever play live with uh, Cruel Frederick on the same bill? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, we play. I remember we played with them at like Beyond Baroque. Ah, yep. So that would be fun because there would always be people sitting in it. You know what I mean? Like, so we would go jam with them, or they'd come and jam with us. And in fact, the net, the band I did after that, two bass hit, was Bob Fitzer and me playing bass. Because I, I went like, you know, it, it, I always felt like, well, they'd have a horn player, guitar player sitting with the other band, but. There was already like, oh, there's already another bass player, mm. you know. But that idea I kind of got from Ornette. Like, well, fine, I want another bass player so we can play it. Because that, to me, is a really thick, fat sound. But, yeah, we played it like, because, like I said, there's overlapping membership. So we would always just set up gigs where, like, we would jam with each other. Yeah, it was great. You and Bob Fitzer had a, was it a duo? No, that was like. It was called Two Bass Hit. It was that was a revolving cast of characters. I mean, sometimes we started out. It was me and Bob, and we had two drummers sometimes. Oh wow! Paul Lyons, Paul Lyons, who later played with some of the other Congress stuff, and whoever else would play drum. And Vince McGrew. I don't know if you know Vince McGrew, who plays yep. in the Bazooka right. and El Grupo. Oh yeah, yeah. So that was really cool. So it was um, Victor Balo was playing guitar, but. Different people, because that was a big band. I mean, it would get big. Different people would come and sit in. But I like the idea of having two big... When we had two bass players and two drummers, like, there at one point, like, Danny Franco was playing with us. We had two drummers and two bass players and a bunch of horns. It was, it was <laughs> cool, man. I mean, that's like... I'm, you can't really maintain that. It would just be everybody would show up. and it, But that, to me, was like... You know, I like that big sound, like Fela, or, like, those big big bands but then just with a lot of with a lot of noise yeah <laughs> but yeah we play with those guys all the time so that was kind of a that's a joe song with a lot of different horn yeah all of our horn friends playing on it devin sarno is listed in the album credits as performer gavels filibusters and gerrymanders yeah do you recall what role devin played on the record i mean he basically was just help i was like he was like instrumental in organizing the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like he was is a real, like uh, a music fan that's very supportive and also helps organizing stuff. If that makes any kind of sense. A great, a great dude. Yeah. Really great. He's great, great guy, great musician. And you know, there's only one, one other person that I know, like, you know, Keith Morris from the circle jerks. Mm-hmm. Right. He's a music fan. Devin was a real music fan, not just to us. I mean, people that really love music. Yeah. yeah and so, totally. they, they, you know what I mean? That, that's yeah. all I can say about that. He was like a music, a really good friend and very supportive. And things probably never would have come out as good if it wasn't for Devin. Uh, the cover art. Do you know who did it? Yeah, it's Joe. Yeah, that's what I thought. 
do you happen to have it in front of you? I'm wondering if you could tell me who's who on the cover here. I don't. You know what? The thing is, this is terrible. I don't even have a copy of that record. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me. You can tell me who's okay. Going for. I think it's no. It's like Steve Moss, Joe Biza, then Jason and me. I think. Okay, I'm going to tell you who I think everyone is. There's someone wearing uh, a crown of with asparagus. Yeah, I think that's Joe, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think Joe's wearing a Swami hat with a chili pepper on it, I think. Yeah, that's Joe. That that might be Steve Moss. Yeah, you're wearing like a fez, maybe. Yeah. God, it's been a long time since I've seen that, but you know, another thing about me, I mean, to me, like, Joe Byers is a good friend of mine. We're always going to play with each other, even if we take a break. You know, we haven't done anything since COVID, and who knows, whatever, but he's a great artist. Yeah. I've seen some of his, yeah. I mean, just a great art, like musically or whatever. The guy's just an artist. You know what I mean? Like he's a great artist. Whether he's doing music or not, he's got a very singular thing going. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. The the art on this is amazing. Do you know? Uh, was the title a reference to anything in particular? Prosperous and qualified. Uh, it was kind of a joke. Like I remember he was talking about. He was seeing this 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 uh. This this uh there was like a, a Mexicano dude like a pushing the pushing the cart, you know pushing the shopping cart one day and it was really hot, so he was not a skinny guy so he had his shirt pretty much up to his neck because he was ventilating. He like he goes, man that guy looks prosperous and quiet. for some reason it just came out like that like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean where something came out and it just stuck like, that guy looks prosperous and qualified like. I know Joe likes to go for things that are a little, I like this too, like indirect and sort of imply things. Do you know what I mean? Because when he came up with the name Universal Congress of, he goes, I wanted a band name that didn't sound like it was a band. <laughs> and because people would say the, and he, the universe, he goes, no, there ain't no the in front of it. Right. It's just Universal Congress of. Of what? He goes, just of. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like people either like it's very funny that like he you would write a thing a certain way, right? And people were always trying to add something to it or subtract something from it. And like, no, it's Universal Congress of. There's nothing. It's not of anything, and it's not the. It's just right. that. So you mentioned you know you'd probably still be playing shows with Joe if you know if you were able and when you're able. Tell me about some of these other bands you've done, like Mechalodiacs, Web of World, Pudanesca. Yeah, well, those are all those are all basically ones I've like done. Joe's played with all. I mean, it doesn't matter what other stuff I do or what other stuff Joe does. We have a musical kind of shorthand where I feel like we're always going to be able to get together and make music. I think our musical sensibility, you can hear it on that record. You know what I mean? Like to me our musical sensibilities are aligned in a certain kind of the stuff that he wants to do that I might not necessarily be the best person for or the stuff that I want to do that, that he might not be the best person for, but there's a very big swath of like a very large tract of common ground where we can always play with each other. So those things were just other things that either I was doing, like I was playing with Weebas, this like my musical partner, though we do more songs but we bring Joe, Jay, man, play, you know, we'll do a band thing, come in and play, you know? Right. It's always that to me, like, it's very good to have a revolving group of people 
that you can play music with. Like Vince is another one, you know. I mean, I've been playing, doing stuff with Vince on and off for, you know, Vince is a great. I mean, I don't know if you know, like, he's like the Lou Gehrig of the LA music scene. Because I don't know, you heard about Cafe Nila though, right? When it was going. Yeah. Because you could hardly go there and I where, even if Vince wasn't in one of the bands, somebody was going to want him to sit in with them. They got to play sax, flute, harmonica, drums. Right. So like, if you need a band, I mean, just have a. We got a guitar player, man. Just get Vince. You know, whatever. <laughs> whoever doesn't show up, he'll come. That's a great music. I mean. He's just a great musician, you know? So he was playing with almost everybody there, at least sitting in with them to, to some degree. You don't have a band, per se, right now? A couple of different projects. I mean, I'm doing some stuff that's really radically different. I'm doing this one thing called The Mourners, which is just like, that was basically the stuff that I was writing that didn't really fit in that. It's like, it's almost like Woody Guthrie kind of, you know, if you took a cross between Woody Guthrie and Hank Williams and threw in some weird, quirky, sh that other quirky shit. Like, I can't help it. The quirky stuff's going to get in there. So <laughs> it's just me playing acoustic guitar and two women singing. Oh, yeah. So it's like a really different trip from that. It's very pared down kind of like thing. And mm -hmm. I'm playing with Weba, who's on like Putinesca and Weba World. So, you know, I mean, I'm always doing music, man. I can't, you know, some of us. You know, there's people that want to be rock stars, like there's people that want to be actors or they want to be famous. Right. And then they quit when they don't get that, you know. Then there's those that are musicians. Like, if you are, you're never going to stop playing. For sure. You know? <laughs> so that, that's, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. It did, yeah. Ralph, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for keeping interesting music out there floating around the universe, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you have a very good evening. Thanks, you too. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. All right. So cool to have Ralph on. Sounds like he would be a lot of fun to be in a band with, I oh, would yeah. say. And uh, lots of cool ideas brought into the mix as you're writing and improvising with this band. I mean, we'll go through the tracks and see who kind of gets the credit and stuff, but just in the way that Ralph was describing kind of the writing process with those guys, that sounds like that would be just a heck of a time. Yeah. I hit up our podcast pal, Devin Sarno, to ask him a few questions about this. Uh, Devin had sent us a while ago a bunch of posters and photos and uh, a press kit, actually, for UCO. And, right. And uh, he was kind of the de facto manager of the band so he was in charge of gavels gerrymanders and what else uh filibusters filibusters yep <laughs> <laughs> nice to hear him get a great shout out from ralph in the interview too but um De when i told devin that i talked to to ralph he's like oh awesome that must have been colorful i think is how he put it yeah 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 some cool stuff in that interview. Great to hear uh, Holly Gully Rehearsal Studio, Robin Jameson's studio. Right. Get a mention. I like how Ralph said they grew up on Sabbath and Blue Chair, then punk, but then got into jazz. Mm-hmm. They ain't the only ones. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'll give you a little spiel, Ryan, from this, uh, from this press kit. 
And I'm going to be using some quotes from this one particular article when we go through the tracks. It's called UCO Fusion Without Fusac by Bill Millard. This is from an article. I'm not sure where this appeared, though. It doesn't say. Remember jazz rock? Scads of 30-second notes and incalculable speed? Chords from Mars? Odd time signatures that only people who'd had some sort of futuristic cerebellum surgery could play? Guys with hands so fast you'd wonder whether the species was evolving extra digits? (laughs) (laughs) Guys with baggy white suits and adopted Hindu names? Guys who'd tell guitar player and downbeat interviewers spacey things that ought to have landed them in the impatient deprogramming ward for drug casualties and Scientology victims? Bloody good thing that's all over with, right? Confess, if you were an adolescent male in the 70s and you were too intelligent for heavy metal, there's a good chance you listened to this stuff. Not only listened to it, but actively sought it out. Compared your favorite post McLaughlin guitarist solo velocity with the velocities of the favorites of your friends. Passed out over Planter's Punch and Finchin with Jean-Luc Ponty. Cranked to nine on your Pioneer. For a few very weird pre-punk years, high-powered jazz rock fusion was the stuff of collegiate macho ritual. Difficult, undanceable, cerebral, but at times visceral. The best adrenaline stimulating sound available in those dark days of James Taylor Wimpery and Emerson Lake and Palmer Pomp. I don't remember too many women enjoying fusion, but in retrospect, I guess that should have tipped us all off that something about that music was pretty limited. But it's been a long, long time since the instincts of teenagers were a reliable guide to good rock and roll. Nobody can stand the stuff anymore, of course, but there were worse mistakes for teenagers to make at the time. Punk permanently disassociated the drive towards urgent non-commercial sound from the fetish for instrumental technique. Still, there have been occasional odd hints of temperamental affinities between punk rock and avant-garde. And in parentheses, when Ornette Coleman broke his long-performing silence in 1981, the only musicians I recognized in the crowd were members of Mission of Burma. Hmm. The possibility of a jazz rock synthesis that would avoid the indulgence of the 70s fusion has been lurking around the corner for some time. A handful of bands around the country have recently explored the territory. Prominent among them is California Outfit with the difficult name Universal Congress of. It goes on from there, but he mentions James Chance and the Contortions, Material, uh, Ornette. Yeah, it's a great article. And I, I, like I said, I pulled some, some stuff from here also when we go through the tracks. Yeah, I like the title of it too, because it says UCO Fusion Without Fusac. What I think the writer, this guy, Bill Millard, is getting at is that Fusion did get a little Muzak. Yeah. You know, it definitely like lost its edge after a while. And UCO has lots of edge. Yeah, like weather report and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's go through these tracks, man. History lesson part two. So track one, side one, Dancing on Plato's Tomb, written by Joe Biza and Ralph Gordetsky. Here's what Bill Millard says in that article. Establishes a great grungy mood for the album, with bassist Ralph Gordetsky and drummer Jason Kahn laying down a stop-start alarm funk rhythm. 
Joe Biza delivers some rough, semi-spoken lyrics above squawky, boxy sax lines. The whole thing's hard-boiled and infectious. Yeah, it's a real sweet bass groove, really funky groove. And again, the bass and the baritone sax, it really locks in. Love it. Yeah, I think Ralph says they were going through it for a big band style, like laying down the fat low end, I think is how he put, puts it. Oh, it's fat. Yeah. Great vocal from Joe on this one. If I feel like if Universal Congress of has a, a sound, I'd say their sound is when the entire band kind of locks in. The horns, the guitar, the bass, and the drums into it like that groove, which is kind of exemplified on this song. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think Joe's guitar is pretty distinctive too. Like he car- he really evolved it from saccharine trust into this as part of universal congress of this really clean skronken like he plays guitar like a sax player sometimes for me and that that is a signature of uco for me yeah for sure eric dolphy i think is who Mm -hmm. uh who ralph compares him to exactly ralph uh, eric dolphy was a sax player yep yep this track has jacob cohen and, and lynn johnston on it as well the sax break on this song is just perfect. Okay, track two, Spreading the Malice, written by Joe Biza. Here's uh, from Bill Millard again. A harmonic pattern that veers in and out of tonality, providing plenty of room for Biza and Moss to trade menacing solos and displaying some virtuosity from Gorodetsky and Khan, whose busy cymbal work and neo-art Blakey roles prove that UCO's Notesy tendencies don't necessarily separate them from real jazz. Mm. As Ralph calls it in the interview, Jason's methamphetamine ride symbol. Yeah, well, this is a definite jazzy sounding song. It's the one that begins off too, right? Like, boodle-a-bap-boo, boodle-a-bap-boo. Yeah. It has that total feel right off the start, and uh, it's awesome. But it is the, it's the ride symbol. Yeah. The ride symbol like totally defines it. Yeah. Hyper bebop jazz punk, I think, is what Ralph says. Super fast. Uh, the solos are great, especially Joe's. Yeah, it's a great song. Kind of a one-two punch here, starting the album. And then we go into High Time. This is the James Blood Almer track. Uh, Bill Millard says, Reveals their firmest roots. The light-hearted lines of Almer's composition suggest late-night surprises in smoky rooms, adding moments of discipline between the soloist's rowdy excursions. Almer is the perfect choice for UCO to cover. Just close enough to rhythm and blues to maintain street credibility, just wiggy enough to stay in view of Monk's impish harmonies and Coleman's freedom. As Ralph says in the interview, no real chord changes, it's kind of a drone. James Blood Ulmer was for sure an influence on Joe Biza's playing. Uh, we've talked about him before, an American jazz guitarist and singer. He played with Ornette Coleman on his records in the 70s. Definitely an influence on Greg Ginn as well, for sure. Yeah. I have one record by him that I think was, I think it was recorded or produced by Vernon Reed mm. from Living Color, which is, uh, that's another retroactively obvious connection that would be made. Like I'm not surprised at all that Vernon Reed from living color would be influenced by James blood Ulmer, right. As well as Dr. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, tales of captain black is a good one for people to check out. I think it's his first one. Freelancing is a good place to start. 
Uh, if you want to check out James Blood Almer, this track is actually on that record from 1981, much slower than UCO's version, which is already pretty slow. Uh, this track has Jacob Cohen on it also. Uh, then we go to track four, Stovetop, written by the whole band. Bill Millard. After three songs of this strength and range, it's difficult to imagine what they'd do next. And Stovetop represents a slight falling off in intensity, but its shifting, fractured rhythms and detective movie signature melody are spooky mm-hmm. enough to command attention. Yeah, it's got that feel like a sneaky, slinky type of track. I love the parts to where where Ralph's bass and what what's being played on guitar it almost sounds like bass chords I can't tell if if Ralph's doing it all himself or it's it's some sort of melody of the bass line with the guitar but I love that sound uh, during this track and then we end side one with mellow down easy a Willie Dixon song uh, here's what Bill says no throwaway, even though it requires an entirely different variety of energy from the rest of the record. Moss blows a mean blues harp, and the rest of UCO converts seamlessly into a barroom blues band. California suddenly becomes Chicago. Steve Moss Ryan is definitely the star of this one, honking on the bobo. Yes. Yep. Uh, his vocal is great. I think I got cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> This song's been covered hundreds of times, I'm sure. Not sure if someone else did that opening monologue, though, or if UCO did it first. It's not on the the original, anyways. Um, first recorded by harp player Little Walter in 1954. Willie Dixon played in his band, Little Walter and the Jukes. This one, for me, I really love Vetus's live production. Yeah. Willie Dixon, of course, American blues guitar player next to Muddy Waters kind of considered one of the primary architects of the Chicago blues sound. Okay, and then we flip it over for Igor's Blues, written by Ralph Gordetsky. Bill says, a busy, stuttering array of funk riffs, and it's probably the closest UCO gets to the 70s. Biza avoids fusioneer speed and displays, though, preferring to reach for jarring dissonances and dwell on them for a while. This is the one Ralph says, if Igor Stravinsky was in a blues band, what would he write? It was kind of his, what he was going for on this one. Yeah, that's fair. There's some insane sax chops and slapping and popping on this track. Yeah. Biza's playing is great. Love the stabbing little licks he plays. It sounds to me like Steve Solo incorporates just a little snippet of something I've heard before, like a jazz standard of some sort, just for a bar. I couldn't place it, but... Yep. No, I heard I heard it too. There's there's little allusions or references to some standards here and there where they're just kind of going, yeah, we can do that, but we're not gonna. Yeah. I guarantee you this is the one, this is one of the ones they extended into a total jam live. Then we've got Love Camp, another highlight for me. Uh, this time, the whole band gets credited as well as Bob Fitzer. Bob Fitzer was the bassist on We Became Snakes and some of Past Lives, and he played in the Jack Brewer band after uh, Sacron Trust split up, and he later rejoined Universal Congress of, but not during the SST era era of uh, mm. UCO. So I'm assuming this bass rift is dating back to his time in Sacron Trust. Yeah, possibly. Bill says, more or less filler, but more filler should have this many dramatic passages. Huh. This song has got like a James Brown groove to me. And I thought this was the one where 
they're layering a three, four and four, four time signature over top of each other for a period. And then they, they come back, you know, every, every 12, right? Yeah. This, I don't agree that this is filler. I love this song. It's a total no, no. jam, total jam. It's got Lynn and Jacob joining in. Yeah. It, a great vocal from Biza kind of also in that jazz poetry tradition, insular wombs of concrete and steel, a jackknife that no one can feel. Skiddly, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Track three, Step Back, written by Ralph Gordetsky. Here's Bill. Features melodic ideas straight out of the early Mahavishnu Orchestra, but just when it seems about to take Western ears too close to uncomfortable borders, it kicks into a bridge section that puts big band reeds and 60s stomp funk rhythms through the spin cycle of a low-rent time machine. Yeah. It's got a sweet kind of shuffle beat that brings a whole new flavor to this record, and I love it. Yeah, this was a highlight for me, too. Uh, written yep. by Ralph Gordetsky. I think he says in the interview, uh, or I think I said in the interview, that this one, I just love the way Biza's tone matches up perfectly with Steve's sax. Yeah, exactly. And then we end the record with L.L. Kook, written by Joe Biza. More or less straight swinging blues is what Bill says. This one has all three horn players again. They each get a solo. I'm going to say it's Steve, Lynn, and then Jacob in that order, but I'm not certain on that. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even dare to guess. But good for you, man. Yeah. <laughs> the mid the middle solo is really uh, almost a like a free jazz thing, mm-hmm. and I kind of equate that with Lynn Johnston. So. That's fair. That's my That's rationale fair. there. Yeah. There is kind of an unlisted track on the LP, like a, an improv thing. Mm-hmm. You can see you can see it on the B-side in the grooves. And it's, it's total improv and free, not listed. It goes on for like, I don't know, a minute and a half or so. Yeah. We mentioned Devin Ryan, uh, Devin Sarno, who we had on as a guest on episode 149 for Past Lives. He was a, a friend of the band, you know, de facto manager and roadie. Uh, and as I mentioned, trust. yeah. And uh, as I mentioned, he uh, he sent me a really great press kit, and there's a bunch of reviews in there. So I pulled out a few things from it, from some of the reviews. Here's from Option Magazine, September of '88. Good honkin' sax-drenched jazz from Joe Biza and Pals. The Congress lays down grooves up and down your spine thanks to drummer Jason Kahn's tight-fisted explosives. Then it's up to Biza to work his guitar scales and wah-wah pedal like some renegade prog rock pioneer. Saxman Steve Moss contributes virtuoso squawk. Bassist Ralph Gordetsky does aerobic walkin'. Go Cats, go. That's by Fred Mills. Uh, here's one by Bill Colhassie from Blue Notes in the LA, an article in the LA Weekly, October 6, 1988. This is one band that takes the James Blood Almer dictum, jazz is the teacher, funk is the preacher, to heart. The mm. Congress sound is a bit primetime, a bit decoding society, a bit Joseph Bowie's defunct, but with an intensity all its own. They play fast and mostly tight and aren't afraid to put it on the line during solos, no matter how rough things get. Here's Tim Van Schmidt from The Oracle. Not sure what that is. 
Prosperous and Qualified, sounding like Larry Coriel's early fusion work or King Crimson's jazz rock experimentation, but more like the frantic soundtrack to some black and white detective movie set in a beatnik coffee house full of smoke and existential posturing. Here's one from Butt Rag. <laughs> Where are all the good zines anymore, right? The people who will call this typical SST self-indulgent progressive shit are usually tunnel-visioned idiots who think the same of straight jazz, if they're not lumping it in as new age or elevator music. Then again, this really can't be called jazz without a footnote. The rhythm is hard, more like a good funk with a prime time treatment. Hmm. So, prime time mentioned twice. Yeah, that's or Ornette Coleman's band yeah, yeah. in the 80s for people who don't know. Uh, here's one from Low Life. Joe Baez's Universal Congress of joins the ranks of other recent bands that build style out of a potpourri of borrowed, adapted forms. I picked this one out because of the some of these other bands he mentions, Ryan. He says, or she says, other notable members of this set are Mofungo, Fish and Roses, Etron Faux, Le Lobelon, and the Mekons. Yeah, nice. Etron Faux is a cool band. I recently spieled about they're really good uh here's from your flesh number 14 the universal congress of is a band headed by former saccharin trust guitarist joe biza they've gone further in the jazz direction saccharin trust were obviously touching on saxophonist steve moss follows and plays off biases guitar very effectively this is not twisted funk a la James Blunt Almer or Gut Bucket Skronk Jazz like Last Exit. UCO is more of an electrified Timphony 5 with up-tempo horn numbers and just enough dissonance to make the tunes interesting. Hmm. Here's one from the Austin Chronicle. Recording some of the most irreverent and eclectic bands on the fringes of the rock world, SST Records is hardly a jazz label, but sometimes the edges of both worlds overlap. Case in point, the Universal Congress of is really a four-piece rock band that plays jazz. There's more on here, but that's just what I picked out. It's always interesting to hear what people at the time were saying about this. Yeah, and all the other bands that they were referencing too, yeah. as as being kind of in the same crowd. Yeah. The artwork, Ryan, is amazing. Um, Devin confirmed for me who we're looking at here on the cover. Yeah, it's a amazing, as you say, uh, collage art by Joe Biza. Love it. Yeah, so we've got, from left to right, Steve Moss with the asparagus crown. Ralph with the kind of giant crown on his head. Mm -hmm. And then Joe Biza with the swami hat and the with the chili pepper. And then uh, we've got Jason Kahn wearing the fez. As is tradition. Yep. <laughs> and there's there's just all sorts of crazy random out of context uh misappropriated stuff cut up in this album cover like ducks and pencils and things are flipped upside down and they make you have to like reorient the the album art to look at it a random like mike tyson head um ancient artifacts you know, it's uh, it totally fits the <laughs> totally fits the music for sure. Yeah, no, it's great. And then on the back cover, 
Devin also told me um, in the lower right-hand corner at the bottom, that's Steve again. But I noticed he doesn't have a mustache on this time, on this picture. So I'm wondering if the one on the cover is pasted on there or something. Maybe. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe he took a shave break during the photo session. Maybe. You know, shave break. Yeah. Lots of people do that during photo se- sessions, for sure. It could it could just be the shadows. I don't know. Uh, Devin also said the boy with the chain necklace was the son of a woman Ralph was dating at that time. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a serious padlock around his neck. Yep. Yeah, it's great artwork. Joe Biza is an amazing artist. Yeah. Who do you think that is on the LP label? Oh, you're you're referencing on the B side of the LP label. There is. It looks almost like kind of this red, it looks like a demon face without the two horns, but when you put it on your turntable, the spindle goes right through the middle of the forehead, almost like a silver unicorn horn. It just looks menacing while you're playing the B-side. It's it's just awesome. I couldn't guess who, like, I don't know if it's a, it could just be, like, it could just be taken out of a magazine or something like that. It could be an actual person they know. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. But it's it's it totally fits when you flip it over and you're watching it spin around. And I sent you a video of it. It's awesome. Yeah. Also, uh, Ryan, people should check out. I know we've talked about this before, but Devin's uh, UCO Boots page on SoundCloud. If you just Google UCO Boots SoundCloud, you'll find it. It has a complete version of this album live. Oh, uh, man. Live versions of the follow-up, too. This is Mechalotics and some stuff from the first lineup uh, performed on Devin's radio show on KXLU back in the day. Yeah, I was watching some YouTube clips this week for sure, too, just to see them all just yeah. skronking live on stage. The yeah. live skronk is awesome. Ryan, we have some dead wax. We do, we do. Only on the A side, unfortunately, but it's a solid enough inscription to to be, you know, just one side only. Here's what it says on the A side of this record in the dead wax. A hard slap will pop the corn. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then flip that baby over and get that weird demon face with the silver unicorn record spindle laughing at you while you're grooving to the b-side love that yeah hey let me give you this what the spaceman said about this too before we go over to the ballot result because he's he's in uh in fine form here this is from the sst catalog universal congress of prosperous and qualified smoke dot 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 the kind that has hung around dusty roadhouses and back alley bop joints since the birth of American Cool. Drawing in and then blowing out the smoke of souls, the Universal Congress becomes prosperous and qualified on these nine new songs. Includes High Time. LP, cassette, and CD this came out on. Yeah. Ballot result, man. Ballot result. Interesting they mentioned High Time. I wonder if that was like, you know... The single? I don't know. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a promo single or anything for this record that I could find. Yeah, I don't think they were doing promo singles anymore by this point. But uh, High Time wasn't one of my picks. My picks were Dancing on Plato's Tomb, Spreading the Malice, Igor's Blues, Love Camp, and Step Back. Mm-hmm. 
but the whole record's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I like all those. It's hard to pick. Let's do Spreading the Malice. Yeah. The name of the song is so killer. It tips the scale. Yeah. Let's spread some malice. Yeah. Wow, this was a great record, man. I was really digging it. This is like a 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah. Hey, thanks to Devin for uh, all the help. And thanks to Ralph Gordetsky for being such a great guy and coming on our show. Yeah, totally. And hey, Ryan, thanks to everybody who's been on the show. This kind of, we don't really do seasons, but since we're going to take a break, you know, thanks to everyone who's been on. We've had some amazing guests since, uh, you know, we started up in January again here. And thanks to everyone who's listened to the show as well. Yeah. And uh, spread it around. The more people, the merrier. Discover new stuff. That's like my favorite part, discovering new stuff. So spread it around. Let's keep blowing each other's minds. Yeah, we won't be gone long either. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.